there are a lot of points of friction for bringing artificial intelligence into an enterprise. There's tremendously scarce talent in terms of machine learning and artificial intelligence. There's sometimes very complicated uh, initiatives around getting data organized that AI tools can be leveraged. And there's also issues with integration and sort of understanding some of these complex AI products themselves as well, whether that be in healthcare, finance, or what have you. This week we're going to be focusing on AI adoption in the enterprise. We're going to be looking at it from the investor's perspective. I suspect that this week's episode will be useful for founders listening in who are interested to sell B2B their given AI product. And I know we have a lot of artificial intelligence-based company founders and marketing folks who tune into the show, but it'll be equally as valuable for people in enterprise who are wondering what kinds of tools should I be looking at? What are the qualities in AI vendor companies that might make them uh, give us a bit of an easier time with integration? This week's guest is Rudina Ciceri, who's the founder and managing partner at Glasswing Ventures, which is a VC firm uh, based in Boston. They have a lot of East Coast investments, uh, and Rudina speaks with us this week about what she sees uh, from her perspective as some of the forces at play that are making some AI companies gain traction in the enterprise, uh, or allowing enterprises to leverage them more effectively, and other forces that are sort of encouraging that friction and preventing adoption. Um, One of the benefits of getting an investor's perspective is while company founders, like myself, and many of the other guests we have on the show can at most run two companies at a time and in terms of running the well probably only one at a time investors invest often in dozens and dozens of companies and get pitched by hundreds and hundreds more and get to know them well and follow their stories so Rodina's perspective is is pretty well versed and I think is grounded in a lot of her own first-hand experience in this domain Um, we recently did a a pretty long series actually those of you who've been listening to AI and industry for the last six months will remember uh, a big kind of investor focus that we had had. If you go to techemergence.com, you hover over interviews, you can actually click on interviews with investors and see some of our past exciting interviews from an investor's perspective. But we've never done one about AI accessibility in the enterprise from the perspective of someone who looks at a lot of companies and gets to see which ones have traction and which ones don't. And some of those underlying factors, I think, are pretty darn important. So I had a lot of fun with this interview. Uh, Without further ado, we'll roll right into it. This is Rudina with Glasswing Ventures here on AI and Industry. So, Rudina, I know that your focus is on enterprise SaaS. Uh, obviously, artificial intelligence is the domain where you're really knuckled down. Glasswing has a pretty darn big focus on artificial intelligence. You know, we've heard a lot about the troubles and tribulations of bringing in you know, process automation software with AI, marketing software with AI into existing enterprises. You're working with some companies that have done that pretty well. What do you think is actually driving adoption and kind of getting over some of these hurdles of working with these newfangled technologies like machine learning and deep learning? Thanks, Dan. So I think um, as you look at the, the enterprise market, um, I would say a couple of dynamics are at play. On the demand side, you'd be hard-placed to, to walk into the enterprises and not find artificial intelligence or forms of machine learning as a topic that is being discussed in the C-suite. So there oh, is yeah. a high level of alertness of sort of this need of we need to do something around 
what's emerging. So there is hunger in that regard, if you will, for vendors and tools that um, leverage AI and various forms of learning. The second piece of it, which is what I think you were just touching on, is the barriers to adoption is oftentimes, it's also the case that um, enterprises view AI as this black box and view it immediately as a trade-off between this big promise and loss of control. I don't know exactly how it works and I'm going to lose control and I won't be able to explain it to my governance body, the board or whichever other reporting structure exists around what happened, why did something go wrong? So it's about risk mitigation. And I think that has become a barrier um, to adoption. The way I see, um, to answer your question now, with that yeah. backdrop, adoption taking place is honestly lead with how your, prob- your product or your platform solves um, a pain point within the enterprise, whether it's in MarTech, whether it's in sales tech, whether it's in security, whatever the case may be. At the end of the day, it's about solving problems. And then um, so it's about solving problems and doing so in a, as little with as little friction as possible or less. Yeah. Then Follow with the how, which you're leveraging learning, because that is a win-win in that you're tapping into a pain point, ideally with a known or allocated budget, and then the enabler, the differentiator is AI. I think that is a lot easier to swallow. Got it. And so just to, to summarize this and then continue forward, you're, you're definitely touching on you know some sales 101 points that I think are maybe all the more relevant for AI folks. You know, some businesses have a how that's not intimidating. Sometimes the how for AI can seem kind of intimidating in terms of integration and new skill sets and things like that. So starting with what is the pain point clearly makes sense. You know, the barriers, you know, as as you had mentioned, in terms of risk mitigation, I hear a lot of the time, and probably you do too, sort of the fact that uh, larger enterprises maybe lack people in whatever the department is, whether it's finance, marketing, you name it with the requisite maybe data science chops to know, A, how to integrate some of these AI tools, even if they're pre-built and they're built to be as easy as possible, uh, not really sure how to integrate them, and then not really sure how to kind of do the consistent care and feeding that sometimes is required to keep these kinds of systems optimized and sort of running properly and and, uh, attuned in in a way where they're continuing to deliver results and, and uh, fulfilling the promise of learning sometimes that that the skill sets required in that integration and maintenance might not be in those given departments. My guess is, and you would know better than me, uh, the people who are doing it well are really reducing friction, as you put it, by lowering the bar of how much data science smarts you need to just do those basics. Is that kind of, from your perspective, one of the critical aspects to adoption too, or are there other maybe more important factors at play here? I believe your 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 takeaway is right on and it's correct. And I would decouple it at two levels, if I may. One yeah, being please. talent and talent constraints. The reality that we're faced with is that high quality data scientists and high quality and trained data scientists or machine learning experts are scarce and hard to find. Yes. And it's 
pretty clear why. I mean, not to get uh, too sort of <laughs> philosophical, but fundamentally, it's a lot of this new, renewed interest around AI and this new wave of disruption uh, goes back to what we've seen around the advances in deep learning and then the emergence of very large amounts of data sets because of the connectivity all around us. So you have those two pieces or two driving forces at work, which help drive um, the new wave around AI and AI-powered platforms and products. Now, you look at deep learning, and we were really seeing that at the university and research level in the 2006-2007 timeframe. We've seen it in production starting, what, 2011-2012 timeframe. It's a new field. Said differently, it's basically the graduates from the 2006 onward. Yeah, yeah. That have any level of true expertise. Yes. it's a very different exercise between that and picking up an you know an undergrad with a math major and giving them the label data scientist. They may be prone to you know statistically driven, but doesn't necessarily truly make them make them your data scientist. Yeah. So challenge is scarcity of of highly trained talent. The second part is exactly what you said, which is. Where does one draw the line between, you know, built here versus third party products? Um, you know, I think it's a business decision more than a technology decision as to where do you want to have your data scientists in your organization, which departments and what role do they play versus what products do you utilize that are packaged? require very little support and someone else has the AI expertise and you're reaping the benefits. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. To to make or to buy, I suppose, obviously still a pretty pressing dynamic. You bring up a very, you know, apt point, you know, really there's only, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Do you have more on that? No, I was just going to say, it's not quite, it's analogous to build versus buy, but not quite. It's about if I have huge data sets, will I have, will I hire a team of data scientists that will build their own models and maybe use some open source and some proprietary models and then, you know, put my proprietary data into the system and there will be certain outcomes for XYZ um, business units or departments? Or do I go and use such and such software of a startup or another tech company that's already AI powered and internally it's business as usual because AI is embedded already in the code and the learning. I'm just feeding the data and how do yeah. I think about data? It's that dynamic. Okay. I really like the idea on that dynamic. And I think it's it's such an important one because it doesn't seem to me that a lot of AI tools, now maybe some have, but it doesn't seem to me, like you mentioned, data science, particularly, you know, machine learning, deep learning, talent, extremely scarce. It's also, you know, these these people are graduating from wherever and just getting sloughed off to, you know, Mountain View and Palo Alto and whatnot. And, and it's, you know, it's tough to, tough to keep up with those salaries uh, as well for, you know, most companies. So lots of reasons that kind of scarcity is a major issue. But as you mentioned, you know, is it possible to make things embedded in a way where, you know, the, the actual expertise and tinkering and PhD level knowledge maybe isn't required? The, the analogy I make, and you can tell me if you think this is accurate or not, the analogy I sometimes make is with like marketing automation tools. So you look at Pardot and Infusionsoft and HubSpot and some of these other big guys, and you say, 
all right, you know, the, most people using them, and by most, I, sh I would say, I don't know, 95%, would not understand a lick of what's going on behind the scenes. Now, it's not artificial intelligence, but it, it's certainly, uh, you know, some pretty robust software in a lot of these cases. But the interface makes it such that, you know, you can load up your copy, you can load up your subject lines, you can do your little drag and drop thing, and you can tweak it and edit it and upkeep it without needing to know how to program Pardot or how to program HubSpot. You just need to know how to click the buttons and use the tools. It seems to me that more robust software categories, such as marketing automation, CRM, they've had enough time in the market to kind of feel what makes this simple and usable by everybody? And it seems like AI is such a new and burgeoning field that there haven't been that many ways to kind of hide the complexity, and that's why they still need so much hands-on attention. Is that accurate in your opinion, or do you think there's a different dynamic at play? Um, I'd say there, there is some truth to that statement, and, and then I think there are, there are some departures as well. Go ahead. I would say there is truth to the statement in that if you are looking for certain, let's say, AI tools and vision tools, for example, or um, certain speech tools around AI, those are newly emerging. You're still solving almost the science piece of it before, um, before putting it into production. So in that type of scenario or example, your statement is holds 100% true. Where I've seen it work differently, you picked on marketing tech. Um, I have a company, a portfolio company called Social Flow. It's yep. an investment I made some time ago. In their case, for example, they've been leveraging deep learning for some time to take what I would consider um, or what we'd all consider professional news content um, and basically leverage deep learning and predictives to serve the content on social channels um, at a moment where the particular handle is a proxy for URI then for, for yeah. an individual would have the highest level of engagement. In that case, you're not leading with deep learning. You're leading with, you know, you drive your organic content in this way directly from your handle to your audience. You get miserable uh, level engagement. You leverage AI. Here's the, you know, you, you drive it on the basis of KPIs. And then the user interface is very, very simple. Yeah. Um, in that scenario, it works. And I'll, if I may, I'll add two thoughts correlated to that. Yeah. One, what you are honing in on in the examples around HubSpot or in my example around um, social flow, around the user interface, and I might even say it's the user interface and user experience, the UI, UX dynamic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, emergence of what we've come to call the consumerization of the enterprise, meaning that you your workforce is no longer sitting in front of black screens and in <laughs> yellow yeah. Yeah. you know that the consumer we have come to expect in our uh, working environment and in our enterprises 
that UI and UX that we are used to and that have that high standard as consumers. So when you have that occurring, simplify and easy to digest is the winning value prop. So a user interface that's simple, clean, easy to navigate, lowers that friction or that barrier to entry that we started talking about. Secondly, and perhaps more fundamentally, in my firm, as part of our strategy around AI, we view AI, particularly the year of AI we're in, which is really narrow AI, um, we view it as a layer. So there will be the tools and, you know, that will help for particular skills and tasks and that are pure play tools around AI. But in our view, AI will be a layer that enables pretty much any business or any facet of the business across the enterprise and honestly consumer as well. So from that perspective, I am hard pressed to come up with examples where you won't see um, a role for machine learning for some facet of AI embedded in the software or even, you know, new form factors um, going forward. But I think of it less, less as a standalone tool or product, although as I've said like now for the third time, there will be some of those. Yeah, it's yeah. much Embedded. Almost think of it analogous to what the internet has become, right? It's a definitely, late. Definitely. Not, not to cut you off at all, but I, I think people with a mature view of the technology see that. I think to say, what is the newest, coolest AI tech? Like, who really cares? I mean, what is the result I can drive? And, you know, it's nice to know if AI is involved or not. But like you said, it's, it's a layer. It'll eventually be part of a lot of software, but maybe it's not good to think of like, ooh, let's bring AI into this process. It's more of let's bring in the technology that delivers the results instead of maybe thinking about it in an isolated way. Is that kind of accurately stating what maybe you were putting there? Yeah, absolutely. And to reinforce that point, it is my view that the winning product provided the right execution and the right team and the right market timing and all those other facets. My view is that the winning product has to have some form of learning because Take a software business as usual type play versus one that's leveraging learning and improving and constantly being fed data. All else equal, the AI powered um, product wins every time. All else. Definitely. It's a differentiator, but it needs to be embedded. Yep. There's definitely a, a, a bit of a potential for winner take all dynamics when you can be you know, have enough users to get enough feedback to be so much better and ahead of the curve at all times with your user's experience. And indeed, that is a big part of the promise of AI. I think the folks that have listened to the podcast for a long time, we did kind of a whole episode on this topic with Gary Swart that might be worth typing into the tech emergence search bar. Uh, But Rudina, I think it's important that you were touching on this as well. The last question I wanted to fling over your way uh, and I'm sure some people are going to be interested in Googling social flow. I'm, I'm sure I am once we're wrapped up here. The last question I wanted to touch on, um, you folks are based in Boston, but you've got all kinds of investments all over the place. Although, you know, from what we talked about off microphone here, um, you know, a lot of your present investing has been on the East Coast. I know you have, you know, companies in Maryland and, you know, Massachusetts and other things like that. Not necessarily in comparison. Really, the reason I'm asking you about the regional dynamics is because, We have companies that are looking to get started or looking to open another office or looking to use talent in different offices and kind of considering the strengths of different geo regions. 
when you think about what the East Coast has going for it, or maybe Boston in particular, whatever you're comfortable with, what do you see as the dynamics? Everybody said, oh, you know, Harvard and, and MIT, we have so many academics. Well, that's kind of low-hanging fruit. What else is really kind of going on there that might make it appealing for certain kinds of companies or applications? That is a very good question. I think the AI wave, is, as we think of it, is actually quite favorable to the East Coast in general. I'd say Boston, New York, um, you know, Washington, Maryland, and even I would go in certain, depending on certain areas of focus, perhaps around security, Atlanta and Georgia has some interesting talent and yeah. some interesting talent in particular. So I think there are a few forces at play. One, you mentioned on the universities and easy to talk about Harvard and MIT, but as you look at the East Coast, you have, Car don't forget Carnegie Mellon. Yeah. Um, don't forget, you know, the interesting work that's being done out of Columbia, out of Cornell. Cornell is a big lab around AI. So the body of academic institutions where we've seen AI talent, machine learning talent, and even, you know, because uh, again, AI is a catch-all phrase, but you have, it can be quite specialized depending on these division. Is it speech? Is it natural language processing or yeah. understanding it? Uh, the breadth of universities with um, that uh, have both expertise and specialization and strong graduates in the field is quite strong. Um, and you don't have to take my word for it. If you take a close look at some of the big incumbents around, especially on the consumer side, as it turns out, but um, around where their AI talent is, think of Facebook, big concentration in New York, right? You, you look at Amazon, yep. quite a bit, especially around robotics, quite a few people in Boston. You look at Uber, they picked a big chunk of the machine learning folks out of um, Carnegie Mellon. So that, that is not happening accidentally. So one, one data point is the AI talent bench, even within the world of its quite narrow or quite scarce as, talent, as a talent pool, we have a bit of a concentration here, which is quite favorable. And I'll push it all the way to Canada, Toronto, and Montreal. Yeah, definitely. Then, then you look at, okay, so some of the big consumer companies are in the West Coast, and that's always been the case. But when you focus around robotics and enterprise and cybersecurity, this coast also, you overlaid that level of expertise and has quite a bit of an advantage. I mean, someone um, quoted me a number, um, a figure that something like the top 27 of the top 32 or 33 robotics companies are in the New England area. There's got to be some very interesting talent there. Um, and there's a reason why there is a concentration. And then, like I said, overlay on top of that, especially as it comes to my firm and the strategy we pursue, which is around enterprise, robotics, cybersecurity, where those companies and where that talent comes out of, um, we see quite a bit of advantage. So for those areas, I think at a minimum, we're at equal footing, but I suspect we actually have an advantage in this wave. And one final piece, which is yeah. interesting, AI talent is quite scarce and quite in demand, but fortunately, the financial driver is not the, always the largest and the only driver of what they're pursuing. Oftentimes, data scientists are and machine learning experts 
are looking for creative challenges and creativity and ability to solve interesting challenges, which makes them accessible by startups and other companies alike. So that's a tip. Definitely. I I would agree with that. I think uh, if you run a vacuum cleaner company that started in 1909, you probably neither have the sex appeal or the creativity to attract top data science talent. But I'm not going to say you couldn't. I'm just going to say, man, that's a really hard value prop. But to your point, yeah, a lot of interesting, cool startups that have leadership roles that are extremely creative and fascinating and autonomous and you know important, I think, are yanking people, uh, are making roles that are more uh, appealing than Google and Facebook. A lot of people just want a sweatshirt with the Google G on it and, and you know a quarter million bucks a year, but you're right, that is not going to be absolutely everybody. So just put a cap on what you said, Rodina, as we close out here. You mentioned robotics and, and cybersecurity as industries, you know, certainly in the B2B world where we have a lot more density of companies and probably customers on the East Coast. Do people make that same argument for healthcare and finance as well, I wonder? I know these are really big areas of AI investment, a lot of, a lot of kind of VC raises around AI companies in those domains. Do you see some regional prevalence there in comparison with the West Coast? Do you think maybe it's not as strong as uh, the regional prevalence of uh, expertise in cybersecurity, as an example you used? I think cybersecurity is quite, quite strong in the East Coast. Um, and, and we know that firsthand. Um, my partner, Rick Brunel, leads our cybersecurity investments and we find an abundance of talent and an abundance of AI talent and cybersecurity talent with big pockets, I would say, around Boston, uh, around the Maryland, Virginia area, some in Atlanta, and even more recently around New York. So um, so for sure, we have that level of domain expertise. In terms of fintech and, and healthcare, I'd say fintech lends itself naturally, and I know a bit more around those investments because they typically straddle into the enterprise world. Healthcare is not an area that I have domain expertise in, Got but it. it's okay. a wide that life sciences and healthcare have sort of been dominated by Boston in particular for quite some time. The the way I I wrap my head around this regional question, um, Dan, is when it comes to consumer plays, save perhaps robotics, I think the West Coast has that DNA, the UI, UX talent that's so hard to find and has quite a bit of an advantage. And we've seen that in the digital wave and we've seen that in the mobile wave. On the enterprise security type plays, I would venture to say that we have quite a bit of advantage and strength in the East Coast. Cool. That might be a nice way to put it in a nutshell. So I appreciate that, Rodina. I've never heard it put kind of, I'm sure the sentiment is a, is a familiar one, but I've never heard it nutshelled uh, in that exact way. So excellent. And, and that's literally all that we got for time. But Rodina, this has been great. And I sincerely appreciate you sharing your expertise with us here on AI and industry. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. That's all for this episode on the AI and Industry Podcast, where we explore the applications and implications of AI in your business or industry. And when it comes to those benefits of real insight in terms of artificial intelligence applications in business, this show is really just the tip of the iceberg. AI and Industry is produced by Tech Emergence, and over at techemergence.com, you can find actionable industry-specific coverage, including case studies, unique market research with charts and graphs, 
and regular coverage of the AI applications of both the hottest startups here in the Bay Area, as well as what Fortune 500 companies are doing with AI today. Everything from marketing and advertising, business intelligence to specific industries like finance and healthcare, you can stay ahead of the curve and stay on the right side of disruption by visiting techemergence.com. And when you're there, make sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter on the left-hand side of the page. Uh, Most of our podcast listeners get the episodes directly to their inbox every week. You'll be joining tens of thousands of other business leaders who join us from all over the world to stay ahead of the curve of AI in their specific industry. So that's techemergence.com. I'm Dan Fagella. This is AI and Industry, and we'll catch you next week.